This year, we are all looking for the perfect holiday gift. And today I want to tell you about the gallery. The gallery shop is a curated collection of photographs from around the world. All prints are made from 100% recycled aluminum, giving your wall that gallery finish. Right now for the holiday season, the gallery is exclusively offering our listeners 25% off your next purchase using the code FRIDAY. That's 25% off your next purchase at thegallery.com. That's the gallery, G-A-L-R-Y, using the code FRIDAY. The gallery, creates your perfect space. Welcome to the Step Up Podcast, a place where we delve into different topics to learn more about ourselves and more about others. On today's episode, we are talking about grief. This is an episode of remembrance. As we honor two young men who died in a car crash 24 years ago here in my hometown of London, Ontario. It was December 20th, 1996, and the boys were about to start their Christmas vacation by going bowling. A few minutes after they picked up the last young man, they were hit by a truck as they were turning left. In the car was the driver, Harpal Malik, who was treated for minor injuries. The other passenger, Jason Rock, was in a coma and survived but was left with brain damage. 17-year-old Ross Seabrook and 14-year-old Bruno Da Silva were killed instantly. This episode is special to me because I actually knew Ross. We were in the same class in school throughout kindergarten till grade 8. I never met Bruno, but he sounds like an amazing young man. I had the honor and privilege of speaking with Bruno's parents. Ed and Judith Holder, about Bruno and about how they have dealt with his passing. Ed Holder is the mayor here in London, and his wife Judith is a business owner who owns Razzle Dazzle Cupcakes. Listen in on our conversation as they share stories about Bruno, what they remember from that night, and how they have and still are dealing with their grief. So let's start with that night. What do you remember from December 20th, 1996? Well, that night, I actually, at the time of the accident, had a small business in in Stratford. So I was commuting back and forth from Stratford. So that night, I was coming from Stratford, and I was coming along Fanshawe Park Road, heading home. And we lived in Masonville at that time. And I remember seeing an accident on the corner of Richmond and Fanshawe Park Road. I turned off the road before. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, my goodness, what a horrible accident. And just before Christmas, that's what I remember. I was oblivious to the fact that it was my son. But I saw all the ambulances, the police cars. I saw the hub of activity there. I just didn't know who it was. Mm. So 
let me add my perspective as well. So what Juice didn't tell you was that day she dropped her off to school and we had moved into our house in North London two days before the accident, just to make it easier wow. for uh, for him to get to school, especially since Judith was driving him so often. So she dropped him off like any normal day. And then when I got home from work, which probably would have been, you know, before the summer hour, five-ish or six, maybe, he was at our new home, showing off his new room, his basement, <laughs> to Ross and Jason and to Harpal. These were the three uh, boys uh, who were with him, great friends, mm-hmm. all originally from the Christian Academy. But of course, Ross had moved up, I think, closer to Barry, but to a Christian school. Uh, Grenville. Grenville Community College. Well, there you have it. <laughs> and uh, but, the, but he'd come back to London, which was nice. So they were all extremely excited about being together. And then he, uh, he and the boys had made a decision. So he asked permission of me to go bowling. Mm. So I said, yes. Uh, his mom wasn't home from work as yet. His uh, sister was uh, at Brescia. So it's at school or out. But I said, look, you've got your, uh, your aunts and uncles coming over tonight. So you've got to be home at by nine o'clock. So he said, well, is it okay if I call you at nine in case you want to stay for just a little extra time? He would do that sometimes, you know, he always, but he's always good about being attentive to that and following up. So I said, as long as you call me at nine. So I went into the Canadian Tire, actually bought a book for his mother from him, a little Christmas gift, because he'd asked me to pick it up. Then I went into Canadian Tire to pick up something else installed near Fanshawe in Richmond. And like Judith, went outside the Canadian Tire store. Could easily, that was there. Okay, it was easy to see all the lights flashing and didn't know what it was, but clearly an accident. And uh, so I took kind of the back way in and got home just ahead of Judith. And uh, we didn't really talk about that accident uh, overly because we didn't think about that. We both thought it was too sad just before Christmas. So. Um, Judith said uh, that her sister and husband were coming over shortly, so they came over. And here's what's ironic. Nine o'clock, the phone rings, just as he promised. But it wasn't him. It was the police. And they, they called me and said, do you have a son, Bruno? I said, yes, this is the police. I said, what's he done? Oh. Yes, isn't that <laughs> always, what's he done? Yeah. And they said, well, he hasn't done anything. So you start to logic it out. Well, if he hasn't done anything and you're calling me, and they'd ask for my address. You want my address? Has he been in an accident? So they ultimately admitted that he he was. Mm. And then uh, I said, but if you want to come over, that must mean he's dead. Is that true? And they said, let us just come over. Oh. And I'll let you just kind of take it from there because she kept nagging me to pick up one other sister that wanted to come to the new house. And, and I was waiting for the police to come, but I didn't have the guts to tell her that I just got a call from the police. That must, I, I see that in the movies when, you know, the police are coming to your door or calling you and you just want to know what happened. And they're like, well, we're going to come. And you're like, just tell me. Like, that must be so difficult because you're just mm-hmm. like, just tell me, right? You know what? I think um, what happens, well, for me, what happened is I think our body has a very beautiful way of helping shield the big shock we're going to get. And so even though the police, and you think about it later, if they're coming over, then it must be more serious then, because why would they come over? Why wouldn't they just tell you to go to the hospital? So you think, you, your mind is telling you that 
that it's got to be more serious, but somehow your body shields you from that horrible shock that you're going to get. And so it didn't go, I just never, ever in my mind wanted to go down that road that Bruno was dead, you know? I kept thinking they've made a mistake. That's what I kept thinking. They've made a mistake. He's fine. I just dropped him off at school this morning, so everything is fine. That's kind of what I kept thinking until they came to our house. And then, obviously, I could see their body language. I could see their faces, and I knew it was serious, more serious than I wanted to admit. So, yeah, I think your body shields you. Otherwise, your your heart would break in a million pieces at that moment. And so somehow you take the news as best as you can and and you try to cope with it afterwards. The afterwards is very difficult, but you try to, okay, well, this is what they tell me. What's my next step? What do I have to do? I mean, for me, the most important thing was going to see him. I wanted to see him because my mind, my brain was telling me maybe they're wrong, you know, maybe they've got the wrong kid. And maybe it's not Bruno. So I want to go and see him to see for myself. And so that was my biggest concern is when can I go and see him? Yeah, because they weren't even overly definite. They weren't 100% definitive. They mentioned there were four boys. One was fine, the driver. Fine, physically at least. And one was in critical condition. That was Jason. And so, but they didn't say who was who. And so they left the hope, I guess, the possibility that Bruno might be okay. And then, uh, then you write the new and next tragic, sad chapter of your lives. So wow. That's it. I heard another story. Now, now I can't for the life of me think of it, but a woman did drive by an accident and then she didn't know. She's like, oh, that's horrible. And then it wasn't until later she found out it was one of her children. So that's incredible that you both passed by it and then yeah and my daughter was in the mall actually so his only sister claudia was in masonville mall at the time because she was christmas shopping and she also came out and saw the accident and also came home oblivious to the fact that it was her brother and she was right there so we all came home knowing there was an accident on that corner but none of us ever in our wildest dreams thought it was our son right I remember, I don't know if it was that, I think it was the next day, The my church, my pastor's daughter, she went, I think she went to the Christian Academy as well, or she knew, she knew Ross, and she called me and she told me what happened. And I was just like, no, because I, I think I just saw him a few months before, I think in the summertime. It was just like, what? No, you just don't believe it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Well, it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe. That's for sure. What was Bruno like? What was his personality? So Bruno was a, this kind of quirky. That's a good word. <laughs> uh, he was a very quirky guy with an amazing personality. Very obviously, he was very lucky. He was a tall, good-looking, athletic boy. So he had all the right things. He had no shortage of the good looks, the athletic <laughs> body, and the personality to go with it. But Bruno was a very kind, kind boy. He was loved by everybody. And so the little cute story I was going to tell you about Ross was one day, and I can't remember when it was, I dropped Bruno off at school. And just before I pulled off as Bruno runs out and slams the door of the car and runs out, he, he, there's this guy who comes up to Bruno, much 
taller than Bruno, so I knew older than Bruno, comes up to Bruno and gives Bruno this huge hug. And I looked at that and I thought, oh, who the heck is that kid? Is that a kid? Is that a teacher? But gave Bruno that like just the nicest hug. And uh, that night when we were sitting having dinner, I said to Bruno, Bruno, who was that guy who gave you that hug? And he said, with this huge smile on his face, he said, that's my best friend, Ross. And I said, your best friend, Ross? And he's like, yeah, mom, I play soccer with him. And he's much older than me, but he's my best friend. And I thought, oh, so that was how I kind of met Ross, was this older boy who obviously uh, took a liking to Bruno and Bruno took a liking to him. They played soccer on the same soccer team and um, they were very close. I mean, for, for Ross to come and give him this hug, boys don't like, like hugs. I mean, Bruno didn't <laughs> let me kiss him goodbye at school because he was embarrassed. So that kind of stuck in my mind. And I realized that obviously they were very good friends. So ironic that they would both die together, you know, because mm-hmm. they were good, good friends. And yet Ross was much older. Bruno was 14. Ross was 17 at the time that this accident happened. So he was at least three years older than Bruno. And would a, a kid who's three years older really want to hang out with a little 14-year-old boy? But he did. They were good friends. Ross was very popular and very friendly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I can and totally like see that. <laughs> like Bruno. I think they had the same personalities. Yeah. Very much the same, yes. Well, how were they? Because I think... Isn't Jason Rock, I'm not sure exactly the ages, but uh, so is he the Jason same? Jason was a year older than Bruno. They, he was in the same class as Bruno, but Jason was 15 at the time of the accident. Ross and Hop Paul were 17, and Bruno was 14 and a half. So Bruno was the youngest in that car. And the only reason why Bruno was in that car with those boys is because Bruno was very athletic. So even though he was a junior school in at Christian Academy. He played for their high school teams on their soccer, basketball, hockey. So that's how he made, you know, he befriended these older boys was because he played on the same teams with them for the sports events. He because Bruno was very athletic. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, I remember Ross always being athletic and he loves mm-hmm. soccer. <laughs> yeah. He oh did. boy. You want to get some insights into Bruno. Bruno was at Holy Rosary School right up to grade seven. Well, not all the way through. He was at another school in between, but but he needed the uh, extra support from a resource learning that Mrs. Gold from uh, the Christian Academy provided. She was brilliant. And she was doing some private consulting uh, to help Bruno. And then she said, I could take him full time if he went to the Christian Academy. Oh, wow. So we had to bribe Bruno to go there. And But one of the challenges is the Christian Academy did not have any any formal sports recognitions and Bruno at Holy Rosary was the grade seven athlete of the year. So I explained that to uh, the principal as we were talking at the time. Well, didn't they at the end of grade eight provide athlete of the year? And it was Bruno. Of course, you know, it was a small school and he was tremendously athletic. So he was the grade eight athlete of the year to the point where he was only going to go one year to the academy and then decided that as a result of this, that he would uh, go into grade nine. And it was halfway through grade nine that we lost him. But I will say that that now the Christian Academy has a male athlete of the year in Bruno's name and a female oh. athlete of the year in Bruno's name. That's pretty cool. Wow. I remember in the first couple of years, they asked me to present it. And I was such a dishrag, they stopped inviting me. So <laughs> I can imagine. I did, I, I did get a note from the vice principal uh, th- uh, this past week. 
other Christian Academy, Steve Gaunt, and he uh, he was he said the school was praying for us, and certainly the city and uh, Judith and me, and that was very nice. So. You were all very close, like the boys were all very close. Do you still communicate with the other families, or? So it was very difficult to communicate with Jason because Jason was the young boy, obviously, who had some severe brain injuries. And so it was very difficult to communicate with them. We did communicate a couple of years after the accident, but of course, he did not remember Bruno at all Mm. anymore. And so the communication became difficult because he really didn't even know who I was. So with uh, Jason, after a couple of years, it kind of stopped. With Hawk Paul, he went away to university. I don't even know if he's in London anymore, but I think he went out west. And I think he now is married and is a father himself. Um, uh, So that kind of, because these boys were, you know, Hawk Paul was going into into university. And Mm -hmm. so, of course, that kind of, you know, that communication there didn't happen because I think he's out west. And of course, with Ross, we did keep up communication with his parents for a while. But, you know, life got busy. And I think also what happens is that it's just too hard for us to, it's hard for us to talk to each other only because it's about the same thing. It's about the same hurt and anguish. And so I think the last time I saw Ross's mom and dad was some political event that Ed was at and they came to that. And at the end of the night, they came forward and because they had a question for Ed. They asked the question. And when they asked the question, I recognized them right away. So <laughs> we've also kind of lost a little bit of touch with them. Not that we've lost, we remember them and think about them often, but I think everybody tries to just move on as best as we can. It's too hard. I think sometimes people think that 24 years has gone by. And so surely 24 years is a long time. But, you know, there are some days when it's just as raw as that actual night. And then there's some days that it seems like, oh, my gosh, it was a long time ago. But there are days still that you think to yourself, oh, my God, it's like you're right back there at the accident scene again. So and I think that'll be forever, actually. I don't think I don't think it'll ever go away. I mean, Bruno was in our life for 14 and a half years. Would we have wanted it any other way? Absolutely not. We had so much joy with him the whole 14 years we had him. Was it long enough? No, we wanted him longer, but it didn't happen for us. So it doesn't mean that we, because 24 years has gone by, that there isn't a day that goes by that we don't think about him. There is. And I now have a granddaughter, my youngest granddaughter, who is the splitting image of Bruno. Not only in her looks, even though she's a girl and he was a boy, but also in her quirky personality. (laughs) And she has that personality like Bruno. And so when I see her, there's a reminder. I always have a smile on my face because I think, wow, I don't tell her that because I don't want to maybe compare her to her uncle that she never knew. But I always think about it when I see her and think, gosh, she's just like Bruno. <laughs> yeah. Aww. So so I do have that. And that's a constant reminder that of how wonderful little boy he really was. 
And that must, when you do eventually tell her, I'm sure she'll be so proud to know that she's very similar to her uncle, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think I think she might have to be, she's only 13. So I, you know, I don't want to make her sad or anything and yeah. compare her. So I think when she's older, she will understand. And I think she will, like you say, be very proud of the fact that yeah. she is because she's got very similar traits. Very, it's very interesting. She's quite incredible. And he was like that too. You mentioned, um, you said moving on. And actually that made me think of, I don't know if you've heard of Simon Sinek. He's a kind of motivational speaker. Uh, he has a podcast called A Bit of Optimism. And he had a sister on who had lost a fiance. And she said something that really stuck with me. She said, you can never move on, but you move forward. Because moving on kind of means you get over it, right? But you yeah. move forward in life where you just kind of, you learn to, to deal with what happened. Well, I think the language, the language is right, uh, Stephanie. Uh, the language we have often used is we work through it and we don't get over it. But right. you've got well-intended folks that will say, oh, you look pretty good. It's good to see you're over it, you know. And no one intends badly by that. They, they mean well, but sometimes people aren't always mindful of the right words to say but you have to look beyond that look to the heart and the intent so you're you're quite right this is about working through a process said we've often compared uh, losing bruno to this monster black hole with razor blades surrounding the hole and every wow. time you think of it it just cuts you to shreds but over time the uh, the razor blades sometimes recede sometimes they come back but they recede but the black hole doesn't go away so you still have to deal with that. Right. Is that well, I think so. Moving on, you're absolutely right. We never get over it. I think it is a life sentence for people who lose a loved one. I think it is a life sentence. I know it is a life sentence. But when I say moving on, it's only we do it also in a, because we also don't want to be that person that nobody wants to sit next to. Right. Because we bring the same thing out over and over and over again. So I think we put, we ourselves intentionally move on only because we want, you know, we don't want the people, the other loved people that surround us to feel uh, horrible. That's not our intention. So I have tried to make it a more, I'm talking to Bruno every day, that we do, and about my, to my granddaughters about Bruno all the time. So we never forget about talking about him. But try not to make it morbid for them. We talk about it. I never took them to the cemetery to see where Bruno was until they asked me to go there. When they asked me, then I took <clears> them there. So because then I realized they were ready to go and see. So I've always tried not to make it morbid. So Christmas time, of course. We have a tradition, actually. Yeah, well, Christmas time is a very sad time for us because that's when Bruno passed away. But right. my granddaughter's Christmas time is is an exciting time for them. So we try it as exciting as as we possibly can because we do understand that we can't be putting our grief on them. So we do. We we try to make this a beautiful time. Uh, there was a while where I never put up Christmas decorations. I did start putting up Christmas decorations for my grandchildren so that they wouldn't come to my house and there was nothing there. Mm. And so. Yeah, moving on is only in the sense that we try to make it a little bit better for the people that surround us. That's all. 
but that we ever get over it, no, it'll never, we will never get over it. Right. So I don't know if you know this, Stephanie, but to honor what would have been Bruno's 30th birthday, Judith took a pilgrimage wow. in Spain. It's called the Camino. Have you heard of the Camino? No, actually. Okay, so so I will tell you a little bit about faith, because I, I see you are a person of faith, and I was a person of faith. I wouldn't say that I was a huge person of faith, but I had faith. And so when Bruno passed away, my faith was tested in the worst way, because I kept feeling, oh my gosh, you know, how could God do this to me? But at that particular time, that's how I felt. And then you realize, or I realize, that without me getting back my faith again, there's no way. It was too hard and too difficult for me to imagine that Bruno had gone and he had gone nowhere. There was nothing. And so I wanted to kind of get my faith back again. And so I decided to do this pilgrimage in Spain, and it's called the Camino. And I walked 225 kilometers in 11 days. And it's going through rugged areas and you're sleeping in, in hostels. It's not a five-star hotel. Wow. Holiday at all. More blisters and lying on the grass and saying, oh, my God, just let me die here. It was really a difficult, difficult Camino. But I wanted to do because I really felt I wanted to see if I got my faith, get my faith back again. And so the Camino for me, which just gave me, you know, 11 days of just quiet and peace. And I was just lost in my thoughts as I, as I walked, it was thousands of people walking the walk, but you know, it's um, people from all over the world, all walks of life, different reasons for walking the Camino, but I did it. And uh, I'm glad I did it because you know, there were some little signs that I got, and I believe they were signs from my son, Bruno. And I came away realizing that I, I feel better. I feel better because I do now believe my is in heaven and that he's having a whale of a time up there. As much as I would love him down here, he's not. But it was way harder to think that he wasn't anywhere, that he was in limbo because I my faith was tested so much. So now I think I really do realize there's something. There's got to be something more than just death. And so the Camino really helped me do that. But if you ever look at the Camino, you will see it's an amazing, if people have the opportunity to do it, it's an amazing experience. I had such an amazing experience doing it. And Ed had offered to walk with me. And I had said no, because I wanted to do it alone. I really wanted to do it alone. And I did it alone. And as hard as it was, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I believe that the signs that I believe came from my son, Bruno, really helped me to say, you know what? These are signs. He's telling me he's okay. So that's what I wanted to know. I just wanted to know that he was okay. And, you know, and so then you come back and you get on with your life. Well, so Stephanie, I got to tell you, she not only went on life to Judah's credit, she has opened some small businesses here in London, Razzle Dazzle Cupcakes, a chocolate shop in her we'd send a basket, she had a flower shop, and my daughter's working the businesses now, which allows us to have time to do this interview. But the thing that's interesting is that 
on the Camino, Judith captured a lot of memories on the trip. And as a result of that, started to do some stories. She'll tell you more about that. And she would tell her story of the Camino and of losing Bruno. And there's a picture of of the boys in there and articles you referenced. So it's all in these the slideshow. And I don't know how many people said to you, Judith, you've got to write a book. Yeah, so uh, people were asking me if I would tell my story, especially after I walked the Camino. People were very wanted to know my story. So I started by doing a presentation, and it's about a 45-minute presentation. I have a video that I back up my presentation with. And every time I did the presentation, no matter what group I was talking to, there would always invariably be three or four people who'd come up and say, I loved your presentation, but I'd love to know more about you. And so I decided to write a book. So I wrote a book. It took me three years to write a book. It's an autobiography. I obviously talk about the Camino in my book. I talk about Bruno's accident in my book. But I actually start at the beginning of my life, my story, my life story. I have a very interesting life story. I came from poverty, an immigrant family who, so I grew up and was raised in Africa, war-torn Africa, so went through 17 years of war, also poverty in our family, huge poverty. And so I talk about my beginnings as well. And so I wrote this book and it's interesting. I thought, who would want to read my book? Well, I'm going to have to go to press again. I've already sold all. And I've got to go to press again because people love it. And because I'm very honest, I tell it exactly how it is. I do not Mm. hide anything from anybody. Tell my story how it is. I'm very proud of where I come from. I'm very proud of my parents. My father had a sick education. My mother was illiterate. And as I said, poverty. But I am extremely proud of my my beginnings. And so I talk about it. I tell the world about it. I am not shy to tell the world where it all started. So what what happens, uh, Steph, is that people who've read the book and speak to me say, I can't imagine having courage, the guts to write this kind of a story. So mm-hmm. Judith would never do this, but I'm going to show you what the book looks like because I happen to have one here. One Woman's Courageous Walk Through Life, Grief, and Faith. Wow. How appropriate that we're talking today on this subject. And this was the story that you, exactly the story that Judith wrote. Beautiful. And it is about Bruno. It is about the Camino, but it's about her family, her own personal trials and joys and experiences. And it's, it's that little yellow rose you see here, that little rose, yellow rose there. Do you see it? Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the signs I got from Bruno oh. on the Camino. That's why it's there. Bru- yellow was Bruno's favorite color. Okay. And so it's in the book. And so, yes, definitely the rose. The rose. I always buy yellow roses now. It was his favorite color. And that is what came to me as a sign, I think, on Bruno's birthday of all days. I was walking on the day he would have turned 30 years old. And so that was the sign that came to me was this beautiful bush of yellow roses that I had not seen all the way through. And on his birthday, there were these yellow roses. And so I talk about that that very much as one of the signs that I got from Bruno on my walk. There were others. There were many others. But that was one of them that I got on his birthday, which would have been his 30th birthday. 
Where can people find your book? So my book, obviously, I went to a publisher called Blurb, but they can come into the shop. I have Razzle Dazzle Cupcakes. I do sell it there. That's where most of the people are coming in and picking it up. Okay. I'm just going to print again. So right now I'm out of copies, but I should have some copies, you know, within the next couple of weeks. So out of my shop on the corner of Oxford and uh, Waterloo, that's where my shop is Razzle Dazzle Cupcakes. And if they come there and ask for the book, we'll have the book there. They sell for $24.95, which is the price that the um, it costs for me to print these books up. That's all it is. So it's a three-hour read. It's not a very long read. But I do believe that people will be inspired by it because that's why I wrote it. I wanted people to to know how I got up every morning and kept walking, even though there were many days I didn't want to get out of bed. I did. I got out and I would keep walking. But there were many days, I can tell you, that I did not want to get out of bed. Definitely. You know, it's interesting, Stephanie. The um, Yesterday, I, I spoke to a friend of mine, a fellow Rotarian, who lost his son the day before yesterday in a car accident. Oh, no. The boy was 50 years old. doesn't matter how old you are. It's still your child. And... I recall speaking to him, his wife on the phone, and Nick said, you're the only one that understands because you have been through it. And in some respects, it's true. I'm not sure it's always totally true because, again, I think people empathize, but there's a certain under sense of knowing that we're a similar struggle. We're part of the same laws, and we just do the best to work through Judith and I deal with that every day, and sometimes we'll be fine, and then one of us might start to cry. Yeah, most times we're pretty good now. Judith gives me a little shot in the head, and I sober right up. I don't cry anymore, you know. But honestly, we do, and we do because we love them. We will always love them. So when Judith wrote this book originally, it was for the girls, for our granddaughters. It expanded so that she could tell more of that story. Because too much oral history means too much is lost. I mean, even by you recording this, that's important because while it's oral history in some respects, it's 24 years. Yeah. For And for Ross, and I just think about this and think that, you know, a lot can get lost in oral history, but you're making it the same way that Judith with her story has written it down so that people know the eulogy that I gave, the story that she wrote afterwards, are committed to record so that as you said earlier, Stephanie, the the grandgirls will know who their uncle is and, and they won't have to rely on my feeble memory to remind them who he is. And it's there forever. And I think that's important. He was a little star. That's a beautiful memory. Well, thank you so much. This was so wonderful to hear your story and I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you time to do it we always blown away by people when they want to write a story you know we just think wow that's great because I think that's a mother's biggest fear is that her child will be forgotten you know as a mother you'll never forget your child but that is one of the worst fears my gosh everybody's going to forget our son and so I have made done everything I can possibly do to writing this book so my granddaughters who never met him but we'll never forget him because I talk about him all the time and they're going to be able to read it and see his pictures and all of that in the book. So, um, so yeah, I think that that's great. And I'm sure that Ross's mom, if she does hear your podcast or knows about it, 
she'll be very happy because I'm sure that my fear is the same as hers. I, the fear is we're gonna that everybody's gonna forget our son or our kids, and nobody, no mother wants that. Right. You know what struck me about the other families involved in the accident was how much deeper their faith seemed to be than yeah. than certainly ours. And I was always blown away by how their convictions were so heartfelt and deep. And and I won't lie, I was a bit jealous of that because mm-hmm. I wished we could find that same peace. And it took mm-hmm. us much longer being very angry at God, being very uh, nasty, actually. And I don't want to tell you the language I used at the time, but it wasn't it wasn't the Queen's English. Mm-hmm. And, that was true. Yeah. We were very jealous of the re- the other family yeah. who, <laughs> who had a very, very strong, strong faith. And it seemed like they, they never wavered out of that faith. Unfortunately, I did, and it took me a long time to get some of that faith back, but that always made me very jealous when I talked to them and they were, you know, they had this faith. They knew right away that their child was in a better place. Sometimes I just wanted to balk them one and say, what are you talking about? You know, (laughs) my child is not in a better place. I want him right here by me. That's where he would be better off. But I realized that they just had a deep faith that I didn't have and that I had lost. And I didn't want that back. I don't think I've got the same faith as they do, but I think I've gained quite a bit of that back again, which makes me feel a lot better. Yeah, it's definitely hard. I know a lot of people who who lost their faith or they they definitely struggle when they lose the loved one, right? So. Yeah, yeah. Stephanie, thanks for caring enough to want to do this. Yes, thank you. I know that uh, Bruno's deep friends were those three boys. And for Ross and Jason and Harpal, these were tight mates. And uh, they they really did love each other. We know that. So all I can imagine is that Ross and Bruno are playing basketball in heaven. Soccer, I think, because that was (laughs) what they played together. I'm sure they are because they were very, very close friends. And so... That also gives you, gives me some kind of, um, I guess I feel, well, you know, at least he's with his best friend. And the fact that you care enough to want to do this and remember your friend, I think that speaks volumes as to who you are as well. So yeah, we honor you. you as well. And thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank well. you. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. Thank you. I do need to make a correction. Ross attended Grenville Christian College, not Grenville Community College. I would like to thank Ed and Judith Holder. Thank you so much for sharing about Bruno and sharing that part of your lives with us. I always blog about every topic that I do on the Stuff Up podcast, and you can read my blog in which I honor and remember Ross Seabrook. Go to www.stephapodcast.com. And if you have any stories, any memories of a loved one of yours that passed away, feel free to comment. Feel free to share that with me if you feel comfortable. I find the more we talk about things with others, it helps us to sort through our own feelings as well. You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Podcast. You can email me at stuffuppodcast at gmail.com. I'm going to be taking a little break. I'll be back January 15th when I speak with teen mindset coach Angel Huarbe about one of my favorite topics, anxiety. It's a great conversation that we have, so please tune in.
please subscribe to my podcast so you'll be notified every time a new episode comes out. And you can go to ratethispodcast.com backslash stuff up to rate and review. I hope you all have a very Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, Happy New Year, Happy Holidays. And I'll see you on January 15th. I hope you go out there and make it a great day. And here's hoping to a great new year. Bye.